Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode, we visit with Fry Galliard, the award-winning author of A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, Our Decade of Hope, Possibility, and Innocence Lost, a reconstruction and remembrance of the transcendent era of the 1960s. Galliard explores tragedy and hope through the political and social movements of the times, from civil rights to black power, feminism, and the Vietnam War protest, as well as the arts, literature, science, and religion. Hal Raines, former executive editor of the New York Times and winner of the Pulitzer Prize, had this to say about the book. A child of the 60s and one of the leading civil rights reporters of his generation, Fry Galliard has given us a riveting tour along what he calls the fine line between history and journalism. A hard rain is essential reading for a time when an American president has willfully ignored the hard-earned lessons from our passage through the most tumultuous decade of social change since the Civil War. My name is Landis Wade, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here with us today. You can find out more about me at my author website, LandisWade.com, and I'd love to have you visit. For all things related to the podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. You can find a lot of great resources there. We have show notes of every episode with pictures of the authors, photographs of their book covers, links to their websites and social media, and more. And we have the community blog there. It's a collection of readerly and writerly content provided by writers in the community and authors who've been on the show. And you can sign up for the book report at our website, charlotteraspodcast.com. We send it out every two weeks. It's free. We don't spam you. That takes way too much time. We just keep you updated on what's going on with the podcast, provide a dose of inspiration, Provide some free content from time to time, some links and other fun stuff related to the uh, reading and writing world. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a collection of author-hosted podcasts putting out uh, this kind of content to a worldwide audience. And you can find us pretty much anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. You can also check out our Patreon page. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. This is a place where we provide exclusive content uh, for our supporters. For just a few dollars a month, we provide access to exclusive audio interviews between me and authors who have appeared on the show, where they share their wisdom about uh, writing and the business of writing. It's a great way to get a good education if you're a lifelong learner like I am. But enough with this prologue. Let's meet today's author. Fry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Landis. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, and uh, you know, Hard Rain, you uh, you won a lot of awards with that book, winner of the F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald Museum Literary Prize, Governor Arts Award, Alabama State Council of the Arts, and uh, uh, congratulations on the book and the awards. Well, I appreciate that. It was, uh, you know, it was it was kind of a um, this book was was both personal and. Um, you know, and much broader than personal. You know, yeah. it was uh, this was the the 1960s was kind of the coming of age decade for me when I went from being a I think I was in junior high school um, when the decade started and was uh, 
just graduating from college when the decade ended and sort of thinking about becoming a writer. And, uh, and I knew after living through those times that, that what had happened then was the kind of thing that I wanted to, you know, devote a career to writing about. Yeah. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about that and how the sixties influenced you. But first, uh, I want to tell you that I really enjoyed the book. Uh, it reads like a novel. Um, I have to say though, that, I read about 300 pages and also read the last three chapters and I hadn't gotten fully through it. I mean, this thing's 625 pages and, and I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'm just wondering, it's going to be my little encyclopedia because it doesn't read like encyclopedia to pull off the shelf and check on different aspects of the sixties. But I just, I'm curious, how long did it take to research and write and did it wear you out? Uh, it, yes, it wore me out. Uh, that's <laughs> the first thing. Um, yeah. it, it, uh, I worked on it actively for, uh, for three years. Uh, that is to say, uh, probably working on it six days a week, uh, every week for three years. Uh, so it was, it was a big undertaking and it kept growing. You know, I, I, uh, I, I thought I remembered all of the relevant stuff and kept, discovering that I didn't, you know, as I sort of built the plane as I flew it, you know, I had to, I had to write, but I had to keep researching. And, uh, and as I did all of that, the story just kept growing. And I was sure when I turned in a, a manuscript that was almost 800 typed pages that the publisher would say, well, yeah, you, okay, but you have to cut this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they didn't, you know, uh, which was great for the story arc. But, you know, I guess a challenge for all readers, uh, even if they're interested readers like yourself, you know, it's a lot of well, words. It, it, yeah, it is. But I mean, it's just a kind of, you, you've got a great uh, table of contents. You've got a lot of great end notes and, and, and an index as well. So it's the kind of book, too, that if you want to pick it up and you know, look at what's going on in 1968, which is one of the really turbulent years of the 60s. You can just kind of jump in right there and you haven't missed much because you're analyzing everything. Plus, you add all these little interesting tidbits that that you don't get on the surface. But I, I'm just wondering, Fry, you know, why did you want to tackle such a broad subject where any one of these topics in this book could really be a book itself and ha has been, you know, in many cases, a book itself? I mean, uh, right. you just have, that's, um, first of all, why such a broad, uh, subject, uh, that you're going to take on. And then second, how did you figure out how to balance, you know, how much you're going to delve in? Because you could have gotten lost in little stories and written a hundred pages on just, you know, JFK's inauguration. Sure. Yeah. It, um, you know, one of the things is I was, uh, is I was kind of sifting back through the, the, the time period and trying to, I knew I wanted to write something. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to write. And I spent a couple of years, uh, even before the, th the hard three years that I described to you sort of thinking about it and gathering string and trying to figure out, um, you know, w exactly how I wanted to approach the whole thing. And what I discovered was something that you noted that, that, pieces of the story had had been written about very well, I thought. Um, but there had only been a book or two uh, that seemed to me to be both comprehensive and personal enough to say how it felt that attempted to tackle the whole decade, you know. Um, Todd Gitlin's uh, 
book, um, um, what is it, Days of Rage, uh, Years of Hope, Days of Rage, or whatever. Um, um, you know, it was uh, Gitlin, who's now a, a brilliant academic writer, was then a um, uh, an activist uh, with uh, Students for Democratic Society, and um, and so his book is very uh, uh, it's it's a beautifully written political memoir slash history of that time, and I thought that I wanted to be in some ways even broader than that. That while politics and social movements, the war, civil rights, black power, feminism environmentalism, all of those things needed to be explained. I also wanted to write about music and I wanted to write about sports and I wanted to write about the space race and, mm. you know, all of those kind of things. And, and so I just decided to go broad, you know, go yeah. big, go broad. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and I, and then that raised the question, okay, well, how do you organize something that sprawls into different categories like that, you know? And, and I thought about that for a long time before coming up with an answer. And then I realized I'll write about it the way we experience it, which is in a chronological sequence, you know, mm -hmm. first we live through 1960 and then we live through 1961 and then 62. And with that kind of strict chronology, then you can weave different storylines uh, through, through that, uh, that, that spine that the passage of time offers you as a writer, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, it does. And as a uh, recovering trial lawyer who's always been a linear thinker, I, I thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> right. it. Yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate yeah. that chronology. Yeah. I can pick it up in whatever year I want to pick it up in and, and start reading. That's uh, right. right. So we're going to talk about some of the things like you mentioned, uh, music and sports in just a moment. But uh, I, I want to talk about an aspect of the book that's, uh, I think, a little thematic uh, because the 60s was a period of change. And it seems like Right. Change has been kind of a theme in your own life. You went from being a reporter to an editor at the Charlotte Observer for many years. Then you shifted and took that leap to become an author full time. And then you were a writer in residence, teacher. You've written books uh, that that focus on, you know, uh, political issues and struggles. And and then, um, you know, later you wrote some some country and folks uh, song. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of change going on. So I kind of want to start with this theme of change for a minute because it, it's really mm -hmm. a part of this book and say, you know, if we start in the 60s with the young Fry Gallier, there's a scene on page 136 of the book where you kind of weave memoir into this story, which you do throughout the book. And you, you credit the events of 1962, particularly the racial demonstrations in Mobile, Alabama, where you lived at the time. And seeing Dr. Martin Luther King being treated roughly on the sidewalk by two policemen as events which you say, looking back, set you on the path to becoming a writer. Um, can you talk about that for a moment? Also, um, how it said how it made you feel in the book that history had a face and a face had the power to touch a conscience. I was uh, that just drew me in. I was curious if you could speak about that. Sure. So I was uh, I grew up in Mobile uh, on the in the southern part of Alabama, uh, part of a, a an old uh, white southern family, very entrenched in the status quo. Good people. And I was taught never to mistreat anybody. But at the same time, um, 
you know, that sense of privilege was all around. And I, I, I absorbed that like you breathe the air, you know. And I, as a result, had not carefully thought about some of the dramatic news headlines that were taking shape all around us, particularly with regard to the civil rights movement. I mean, I knew it was important. I knew it was happening. Uh, but I had very, um, I, I had the preoccupations of a kid, right? I was fascinated by sports and I was, um, I wasn't very good at it myself, but, you know, dabbled in it even, even at that. And then I went on a high school field trip to Birmingham and saw Martin Luther King being arrested by two Birmingham policemen. And they were treating him roughly and disrespectfully. Not, I wouldn't say it was police brutality, but, but it was just a kind of um, uh, distress, disrespectful and I thought on the edge of violence kind of moment as they were shoving him along toward a police paddy wagon. And it just so happened that they shoved him right past where I was standing on the the sidewalk with a couple of my friends from Mobile. And I just found myself looking into the face of Martin Luther King three feet away through no premeditation, uh, uh, no planning, no, no nothing. I, I knew vaguely that there were demonstrations happening, but I didn't expect to encounter them. And there, there it was. And and I thought I saw, I mean, who knows what he was really feeling, but I thought I saw this deep sadness in Dr. King's very expressive eyes. And I don't know, all of a sudden, uh, it, it was like it was like he was the face of history. I mean, I didn't quite have those words for it, but it was it was all of a sudden human and real in a way that it had not been before. And I would love to say that I knew exactly then what to think about all of this and that I became a committed civil rights activist on the spot. I, I didn't. I, I, I just became a troubled kid on the spot who knew that something was amiss in, in our corner of the world. That's interesting, uh, Fry. And I want to ask another question about Dr. King, because this is a little scene in the book that I think adds a little something to to the to what actually happened that I I wasn't aware of. So it it, it has to do with his speech. I you know I have a dream speech uh, mm-hmm. on the March on Washington, and I always thought you know, as you hear about it over and over again that that was sort of a central planned tenet to what he was going to say that day. But but you're sitting, I mean, you're writing about, it and it struck me that it was unrehearsed that Mahalia Jackson is there to side saying, tell them about the dream, Martin, tell them about the dream. And, and as I thought about that, I just wondered, is that also one way to think about the sixties? It was a period that was sort of unrehearsed as it sort of unleashed all this change on the world. I think absolutely. That's, that's right. Um, King had, had used that. I have a dream riff that he did in that speech a time or two before uh, but but he had um, he was going through m- more of a plotting text up until that point, and I guess we don't know if he would have eventually come to it. But Mahalia Jackson, who had sung at the march and was one of his good friends, was standing right next to him, and she thought it just needed more oomph, 
And so she whispers or, or, you know, gives him a stage whisper and says, tell him about the dream, Martin. And so he does. And the rest is history. I think that those kind of human anecdotes that just, you know, that make uh, historical figures real to me or, you know, they, they just add so much to the story. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about some things in the 60s that, you know, had an impact on you. But first, I want to jump all the way ahead to August 2020 for a moment. You and, is it Anda Chant, co-wrote a song and released a music video with the help of Nashville artists and and your some of your family, and you call it Change. And and right. listeners, if you go to his, to Fry's website, and we're going to have links to that on in the show notes here for Charlotte's podcast, uh, you can actually watch and listen to this song. It's really uplifting. But again, the word change pops in there. Talk about that and what what motivated that. And I just want to know, has that been a constant through your life, this idea of change? I think it has. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, the, the I thought after a few years of, of kind of soaking in the 60s that things needed to change. Um, and then as a, as a person, you know, you change, you evolve. I don't think you become somebody totally different necessarily, but, um, but, you know, you keep trying to find ways to, um, say the things that need to be, that you think need saying if you're a writer. And, uh, so that kind of evolved for me. Um, and, um, so yeah, you know, I, I hope I keep changing so that I don't become, you know, stale and, and boring even to myself, you know, as somebody trying to tell stories, uh, in terms of that song, uh, my friend, Annie Deshant, um, is a songwriter in Nashville and she's, she's very talented. Um, I had, um, dabbled in writing song lyrics with a couple of other Nashville songwriters, uh, from the, oh, I don't know, 2008, 2009, uh, for the next few years. And Annie and I had written a couple of songs together and she was working on this particular song and called me to bounce some ideas off of. And, um, so we did that and I think I wrote, you know, a few lines, but, but kind of helped her, sort of frame what she was trying to do with the song and talk it through. And so, so she wrote it in, uh, you know, some of the really fine Nashville singer songwriters, uh, Peter Cooper, David G. Smith, some people like that, uh, sang on the video, but so did my, both my daughters and two of my (laughs) granddaughters, you know, so it was really fun. Yeah, it's great. The graphics are great, too. So a lot of good good pictures there. All right, before we have our reading uh, uh, that we do on Charlotte's podcast, I want to talk about the uh, uh, the book cover a minute, uh, you, you know, on the cover of A Hard Rain, America in the 1960s, Our Decade of Hope, Possibility, and Innocence Lost. There's a shadow of a man's uh, silhouette here on the cover, and that's you, right? It is me. Uh, yeah. It's me at uh, when I was 21 years old and a senior at Vanderbilt. Um, and it's uh, I think it's actually uh, pulled out of a picture that I took with uh, with Julian Bond and William Buckley, uh, who who debated uh, uh, the uh, proper role of dissent in America at a symposium at Vanderbilt. And uh I was the uh, I was the host of the student host of that debate. So uh, so yeah, that's me as a as a as an earnest and awfully young looking <laughs> version of myself. Uh, yeah, on the and cover. then you, 
And then you've got little thumbnails on there of different, uh, you know, iconic figures from, from the sixties. You've got, uh, you know, Kennedy, John, um, you've got Bob, yeah. John Kennedy. Uh, you've got Bob Dylan, uh, Martin Luther King looks like, uh, Lyndon Johnson, Malcolm X, Janis Joplin, Robert Kennedy, uh, and Gloria Steinem. Did I get that right? Yeah, you did. Yeah. You did. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it also, it also looks like, I'm just looking at this, you know, visually, but it also, these little thumbnails start at the sort of the top of your head and sort of spill out at the bottom, almost like they're, they're, they're sort of in your, in your consciousness there. Is that how you were thinking about it? Um, I, th I think it's how the, uh, the artist who did the cover was thinking about it. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. you know, I, I probably hadn't thought of it that creatively, but yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Good, good. Well, now that we got the book cover squared away, and uh, let's do a little reading here. Um, this is going to be from your preface of the book, I think. Uh, right. And so whenever you're ready, Fry, give us a little taste of uh, what this book is about. Okay. There are many different ways to remember the 1960s, and this is mine. I have used interviews, journalistic accounts, and the work of other scholars and memoirists to add flesh to the bones of personal recollection. I've set out to capture in these pages for those who lived it and wish to remember, and for those who didn't but still want to know, the competing story arcs of tragedy and hope. There was in these years a sense of a steady unfolding of time, as if history were on a forced march, and the changes spread to every corner of our lives. As future generations debate the meaning, and I also seek to do some of that here, I hope to offer a sense of how it felt. For me, this is history of a personal kind, the story of a decade in which I came of age and in which my professional aspirations took shape. I graduated from college in the terrible year of 1968, a year in which two assassinations altered the psyche and spirit of the country in ways from which we have not yet recovered. I knew as a journalist beginning my career in that year that I wanted to write about these things and that the line between history and journalism was thin. In many ways, I think everything I've written is rooted in that time. Thus, I offer within these pages one writer's reconstruction and remembrance of a transcendent era, one that for better or worse lives with us still. I remember a cold and rainy night in 1968 when Robert F. Kennedy came to Vanderbilt, the university where I was then a senior contemplating a career as a writer. Kennedy was running for president of the United States, lifting again the torch of his brother who was murdered five years earlier in Dallas. You could hear the echoes of JFK, the same affront to smugness, the same call to something better, but perhaps with another dimension as well. For there was in the message of the younger Kennedy a passionate identification with people who hurt. As he said, there are millions of Americans living in hidden places whose faces and names we will never know. But I've seen children starving in Mississippi, idling their lives away in the ghetto, living without hope or future amid the despair on Indian reservations with no jobs and little hope. I've seen proud men, men in the hills of Appalachia who wish only to work in dignity, but the mines are closed and the jobs are gone 
and no one, neither industry or labor or government, has cared enough to help. These conditions will change. Those children will live only if we dissent. So I dissent, and I know you do too. I remember as clearly as if it were yesterday as Massachusetts twang, the jab of his forefinger and the tousle of his hair, the enigmatic intensity of his icy blue stare. But there is something I remember even more. When Kennedy arrived at the airport that night, a massive crowd was waiting there. I never heard an official estimate of the numbers, but it took him nearly half an hour to walk from the gate set aside for his plane to the car that was waiting for him outside. It was a journey accomplished a short step at a time through a crowd of people screaming out his name, many of them desperate to shake his hand or merely to touch him as he inched slowly past. It was hard in the delirium of that scene not to think of the afternoon in Dallas, November 22, 1963, when Robert Kennedy lost a brother and the rest of us lost a president and shared in the shattered grief and disbelief. Everybody I knew who was alive that day can recall exactly where they were and what they were doing when Walter Cronkite delivered the news. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. I marveled in 1968 that another Kennedy would move so willingly through the throng, even if the hysteria on this occasion were friendly. On the same night, one of his friends in Nashville, a former Justice Department attorney named John J. Hooker, asked him whether the risk was worth it. Kennedy brushed the question aside. I can't think about it, he said. What happens, happens. And then it did. In June, in the middle of a similar crowd, a young Arab with a gun pushed his way toward Kennedy and opened fire. Only two months earlier, Martin Luther King had been murdered in Memphis. And now the death of Kennedy in California became, in a sense, the end of the story. And yet at the same time, the story continued. Yeah, th thank you for that, Fry. As I listen to that, I'm thinking about uh, those losses. I'm also thinking about the other aspects of your your book, uh, what those uh, individuals did, and how you know Robert's brother, when he was president, sort of inspired the nation. We landed a man on the moon, three, two men on the moon, <laughs> years right. later. Um, and also the other things that came out of this. Let's talk some about some of those fun things for a minute. The books and literature and the music and the baseball, starting with the books, since it's a Charlotte's podcast, you, you talk about words of change that started in, in the 19, early 1960s. And you cite a couple of books. You talk about uh, uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which was very interesting in that time because the Vietnam War. You had uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which sort of launched uh, this uh, awakening to the, the problems with the insecticides, you know, killing more than just you know, the pests. Uh, right. And then Har Harper Lee to Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and then John Howard Griffin, Black Like Me. These are just some of the books that you talk about that had an influence. I'm just wondering which books you believe from the 60s had the most effect on either changing people's minds or, or getting them to focus more intently on some of these issues that they were exploring. Well, I think there were, were in fact, a lot of issue-oriented books early in the decade that probably, um, you know, raise people's consciousness about uh, about a lot of things. Um, you know, whether it was Harper Lee uh, writing uh, 
1960 about a white Southern lawyer who who has a sense of justice or whether it was John Howard Griffin, a white journalist who darkened the color of his skin and and uh, and passed for black um, for for five weeks, but only five weeks because he couldn't stand it. Uh, his life changed so dramatically and became so hard and the pounding on his psyche and his spirit was so intense as he tried to live as a black man that that he just couldn't do it. Um, that was an amazing story uh, for for a young person to read uh, in those days and maybe for other people too. And then you had, as you mentioned, Rachel Carson, um, Betty Friedan, The Feminine Mystique in 1963. Um, <clears throat> and then, um, you know, writers just continued um, uh, to write so powerfully about whatever was going on around us. Uh, Norman Mailer, The Armies of the Night, about the Viet anti-Vietnam War um, movement. Um, Truman Capote wrote In Cold Blood in that particular period of time about sort of lunacy and bloodshed, which is unfortunately something we've come to live with in America too, even outside of a political uh, context. So, you know, the, I think there was just a steady stream of powerful stuff. And as you mentioned, there were also more more literary works uh, like uh, Joseph Heller's Catch-22, which kind of caught the absurdity of war, even though it's set in World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, it resonated certainly during the era of Vietnam. So, yeah, powerful writing during that time. Yeah. And let's not forget... Uh baseball for a moment because Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle were battling it out for the, uh, to try to beat out Babe Ruth for the most home runs in a season. And the commissioner was, uh, damn determined to put an asterisk beside their name if they didn't complete it by the same date in history that, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Ruth, the Ruth would have completed it, yeah, because they had, yeah, had a the game, same, game. Yeah, the same. Uh, yeah, they, they uh, Ruth competed in a season that lasted 154 games, and their season was 162. And uh, so, yeah, the commissioner did not want to see the record broken, and uh, so he would at least wanted to put an asterisk. And uh, and then after that, you know, one of the ironies of it was that a lot of people. Uh, thought, well, if anybody breaks the record, it ought to be Mickey Mantle, right. who's headed for the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and instead, it was this blue-collar guy from North Dakota, you know, uh, Roger Maris, who did it, uh, and and probably his biggest cheerleader was Mickey Mantle. You know, they, yeah. were, they were great teammates. And so that was another dimension to the story that uh, I thought was pretty, pretty strong. Yeah, and then we can't leave the '60s without talking a little bit about the music. You mentioned this earlier. You've got a on your website, uh, you've got a uh, a link to a Spotify playlist for the Hard Rain Reader soundtrack. Right. Got, <laughs> that's yeah. it's, it's, it's every song that's mentioned in the book. So yeah. yeah, and and you've also got a little brochure here, and I just you know just the artist just just to go through some of these. I mean, of course, you know Elvis Presley is coming into his own in the '60s. You've got Sam Cooke. Uh, who, as you says, uh, you know, brings to life the Southern Chain Gang. And then, of course, Patsy Cline with her song Crazy that was written by Willie Nelson. And then, of course, we get all of these uh, ballad uh, artists, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, uh, Hard Rain, right? Hard Rain's going to fall. Right. And you got, yep. you got Pete Seeger and uh, Joan Baez and, 
And of course, then comes the Beatles with the British invasion. You told some interesting stories about Ed Sullivan and them. Do you want to say anything about that? Well, you know, it, one of the things that struck me, I'd totally forgotten this or just, I mean, I guess I knew, but hadn't put it together. But uh, the Beatles came in early 1964 uh, when the nation was really still grieving the assassination of John Kennedy in, in late 1963. And and Paul McCartney, uh, who, apparently who is a very reflective, uh, kind of open-hearted sort of guy, was very aware of this and talked about it in one of the interviews before their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show. Um, he thought he hoped they would bring a little bit of joy to people who were grieving, as he said they were, the Beatles were, over the loss of of this. Uh, uh, inspirational American president. Uh, the other story that I loved about the Beatles was that they headed from New York to a concert in Miami right about the time that Cassius Clay was getting ready to fight Sonny Liston. Uh, Clay was about to change his name to Muhammad Ali and announce that he was a black Muslim. Um, and some promoter got the idea that it'd be great for the Beatles to pose with both Liston and Clay. And Liston said, I ain't posing with those sissies because uh, <laughs> they had long hair and, you know, whatever. But Clay thought it was cool. And so so he and the Beatles meet in the workout ring where he's training for the fight. And uh, he has on his boxing gloves and he uh, delivers a playful tap to the chin of one of them. I believe it was George Harrison, but I can't remember for sure. But when he tapped that chin, all four Beatles fell down on the, you know, so they just were having, they were just, you know, young people having fun. I mean, Clay was about their age. And, and then of course, Clay goes on to knock out Liston, which nobody could believe. And uh, so again, it was just part of the spontaneity and the, and the joy and the adventure of the time. Yeah. And then, and then you sort of Motown comes on the scene. You got the the Four Tops and the Temptations. The you got Supremes. The, and you got the Beach Boys that are coming along. And don't forget Johnny Cash. You know, he released uh, uh, some albums. And, of course, we talked about change. But Dylan wrote his piece, The Times They Are Changing. And then uh, here come the birds and, uh, you know, turn, turn, turn. And it's just, uh, I mean, I'm looking at all these <laughs> artists here. I'm thinking, this is a lot of great music out of one one 10 year one, period yeah one 10 year period sure and then it ends yeah. with woodstock you know in 1969 oh, yeah. and uh yeah. you know and woodstock ends with Jimi hendrix doing that iconic version of the of the national anthem you know yeah. a solo yeah. electric guitar version of it so uh, just you know amazing stuff i think which is really interesting to go back and listen to but it was controversial to, you know at the time for him to do something like that um, right okay so um structure of the book just for our listeners a little bit we've got three parts to it uh, the first part is possibilities and it carries you from about 1960 to 1963 the second part is inspiration and loss it's 1964 to uh, 1968 and then the third part is the unfinished story you cover the period 1969 um, lots going on then uh, up and down woodstock the manson murders uh Milai massacre the war's going on. Um, it was really kind of a turbulent. It wasn't sort of a happy ending to your to your to no. your book here. <clears throat> and, no. And, and so let's talk about reflect just a moment on 
the ending of the story of, of the 60s and what it may have propelled us forward to? Well, there was a lot of dark stuff happening in the 60s. There were there were, uh, in the in the late 60s. Um, there were there were in 69. There was, I guess, the triumphant landing of, of uh, Americans on the moon and a reminder uh, of the faith of John Kennedy that we could do what we set out to do. Uh, but there were also all of those other things that you talked about. You know, the, we we learned about the My Lai massacre, uh, ch- the Charles Manson murders occurred then. A, um, a, a a young Black Panther leader in Chicago named Fred Hampton, who had put together an interracial uh, coalition that included uh, some white guys from Appalachia, whose uh, whose insignia was the Confederate flag, and yet they were allies of the Black Panthers in uh, in fighting against things like police brutality and, and restrictive zoning and uh, all kinds of things. So, but anyway, Hampton was killed by the police in Chicago, and so there was a lot of darkness, a lot of a lot of hard stuff, but you know, things continued. And so one of the measures of of hope that still survived was that three politicians, two two Democrats and one Republican, ran for Southern governorships on progressive platforms uh, and won. You had Linwood Holton, a Republican in Virginia, Jimmy Carter, a Democrat in Georgia, and Reuben Askew, a Democrat in Florida, who was named by Harvard University as one of the 10 greatest governors of the 20th century in the United States. All of, all of them came out of the 60s internalizing the hopes of the 60s and believing that that could still be our, our destiny. So despite everything, uh, we, you know, we time marched on and the parallel storylines continued of mm. hope on the one hand and tragedy on the other. Yeah. The counter to, um, these, uh, characters in history like George Wallace, who you covered, you know, at length in the book, um, uh, right. who, who took a different path. Um, well, let's talk just a minute for as we wrap up here about a little bit about your writing life. Listeners, we're going to pop over after this is over to our Patreon channel. You can visit us there too at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It, uh, uh, I don't know, it'll cost you about five bucks a month to get access to about 80 or, or more uh, exclusive episodes where we talk to authors about the craft and business of writing. We're going to talk, uh, Fry and I are going to talk about uh, sort of this intersection between nonfiction, biography, and memoir, the similarities, the differences, talk a little bit more about some things he's written. But one of the things we'll talk about, which I want to have you mention briefly here, Fry, is it's a sad story, but it's also an inspirational story. You've written a book, uh, Live As If, a teacher's love story about uh, about your late wife, Nancy, who died of leukemia a few years ago. A uh, very touching and informative book about her life. T- tell us a little bit about Nancy and this wonderful eulogy you wrote of her life. Nancy was uh, a uh, an elementary school teacher and principal in Charlotte for 30 years um, and uh, generally speaking worked in uh, inner city magnet schools in Charlotte both as a teacher and a principal and Nancy just loved kids I mean she was in that way typical of a lot of teachers in the public school system in Charlotte Mecklenburg she thought she was typical she didn't think she was exceptional 
exceptional. Um, and then uh, when she retired uh, as principal in 2004, um, she and I moved back to my hometown of Mobile, where I took a job as writer in residence at the University of South Alabama. And she took a job on the faculty of the College of Education at that university, pursued her doctorate. She had her master's, but she pursued her doctorate and earned it at the age of 67 at uh, the University of Alabama. Uh, she was happy to take a good bit of credit for the fact that they won three national <laughs> championships in football while, while she was there. So, uh, yeah, you know, Nancy was... Um, Nancy was an amazing human being, and um, some of the book deals with the way she handled uh, her journey with leukemia. Uh, a lot of it just deals with the joy of her life as an educator and her belief uh, never dimmed or diminished in the, uh, in the importance and the possibility of public education. Yeah, I loved how, um, and, and I read that book too, and I, I loved how you told the story and how she always was looking for something else to do. I mean, got her, I think, doctorate close to age 68 or nine right. and even had a conversation with you about doing it. And you said, yeah, go for it. But she was just continuing to do these other things and continuing to look after the people that uh, she was teaching. And, and the reason I mentioned, in addition to that, the inspirational side of this, the title of the book uh, is sort of what I think you're saying she lived her life by, Gandhi's lesson, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. Is that how she lived her life? Yeah, it it, 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 it is. And it was, uh, you know, it was really uh, fun and uh, a, a delight to watch that up close and personal. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry for your loss. I appreciate it, Landis. Thank yeah. you. So one last question here in our writing discussion before we go somewhere. Um, if you could tell your younger writing self, Fry, something very helpful that might have helped your younger writing self, had you known it after all your many years of experience, can you boil it down to anything? <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't expect it to get any easier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not very encouraging <laughs> advice. It, exactly. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, it's just, uh, it, it, it's, um, and, you know, if, if you, I would say this to anybody who's a younger person thinking they might want to write, um, but, but not being sure if you, if you want to do it because you, you've, you've heard that writers, uh, get rich and famous, um, you, you might want to rethink that. <laughs> I can, I can tell you from personal experience that, uh, neither is guaranteed. But if you want to end up with a lot of books on your shelves, like I see in your background and like in my background, yeah, try being a yeah. writer. Yeah. yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> go for it. Okay. Well, look, look, this has been a, a, a great. I really enjoyed both these books and uh, appreciate you spending time with us. Look forward to talking with you on Patreon here in just a minute. But uh, for I want to thank you for, for being a, a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. 
If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.